2024, here we are. It's the end of January, and I'm never really sure what the exact cutoff is for saying Happy New Year to someone. So I'm just going to go out and say it. Happy New Year. And as we step into this next lap around the sun, I hope that we can find a way to come together, to be a little kinder to each other, to laugh a little bit more, to not take ourselves so seriously. You are listening to the Awoken Word Podcast, and I am your host, Anuj Rastogi. This is the first episode of 2024, and it's also the first episode of Season 3 of Awoken Word. I'm going to try and keep the intro a little bit tighter this time, largely because the conversation that follows is amazing. I'm really excited about what we are going to be bringing to you in 2024. Some incredible people are lined up for some really deep, meaningful conversations in a variety of different areas. I am so fortunate to be able to come into contact with some of the people that I've met, and I always appreciate the time that people make to have these conversations. If you're new to the podcast, or you've been listening silently for a long time, please rate the podcast and leave a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All of that really does make a difference in spreading the word, and certainly do spread the word, you know, whether it's over social media or within your family, your friends, your colleagues, and your networks. If you feel like talking to zoo animals or your pets about it, that's cool with me. Do what you got to do. My first guest for 2024 is Dr. Jennifer Bolger. Jennifer is the Chief Scientific Officer at ESG.ai. She's an adjunct professor in systems design engineering at the University of Waterloo, and she is a professional engineer. She has built a career around blending state-of-the-art technology, computer science, ethics, and really thoughtful approach to how we navigate technology into all of our work. She is the co-founder of the concept of Zero Effort Technology. Jennifer has presented at several international conferences. She's also authored over 100 peer-reviewed publications. And she's been spearheading the Ethical by Design Framework for supporting collaborative development of responsible technologies. And just happens to be a mother, in case she wasn't already busy enough. Now, for those of you who have been following me for the last several weeks or months, you know that AI is a particular topic of interest and concern for me. Now, let me just say that I know that I'm late to the party. I know that there are many folks out there who have been talking about the ethics of AI, the impact of technology like this for a long, long time. I have also been thinking about it for a number of years, but I hadn't really known where I stood on the matter and exactly what I wanted to say about it. But it's also really important to listen and I've had the opportunity to meet some really interesting, thoughtful leaders in this space. Those of you who listened to the podcast on the ethics of AI that I had with Martin Ryan, I think you will have found that conversation to be a very accessible one on some of the complexities and nuances around ethical implications in the space of AI. Now, why am I concerned about this in particular? It's moving so damn fast and things are changing so quickly. We have this uncanny ability to take something new and novel and make it an intrinsic part of our life. And before you know it, we actually can't see ourselves or the worlds without it. We are on the cusp of that happening with AI right now. AI has made its way into our lives in a more intimate way in the past year with us average public citizens out there. And if we look at our track record with how social media has played out, 
I think we got cause for concern. And when I first connected with Jennifer and we talked through some of the things that are top of mind for us, I was actually quite humbled that she was willing to make time for a conversation that's accessible about some really important topics. We actually begin by talking about the use of AI and technology, not for younger people, but for older adults. And it was actually a, an area that I didn't really think that much about before this conversation, but I'm, I'm glad I did learn a little bit here. We obviously spend a lot of time on the ethics of AI and some of the human dilemmas that it's actually creating, some of the questions it's forcing us to ask of ourselves. We talk about the importance of being critical in our relationships with technology and the role that technology really should play. We also talk about ESG, environmental, social, and governance, three key concerns that have kind of emerged in a space in the context of business and organizations with a mission to actually leverage data to drive transparency in how organizations around us operate. We also talk about how we can attempt to realign the incentive structures of society, and in particular, how we can compel businesses to behave more responsibly. Along the way, we go through some really interesting thought experiments. At one point, I thought I had invented a brand new thought experiment that I thought was really cool, only to have Jennifer rain on my parade by telling me it's actually a long-established one. But for the record, I had never heard about it, and I did make it up in my head. And of course, we also talk about how our economic systems can be improved, how we can create better circumstances for all human beings so that we can actually have a better world. We also had this conversation over video chat because Jennifer is based on the West Coast and I'm here in Toronto. And it may become obvious at some point that uh, I clearly had way too much coffee going into this conversation. I was speaking a little bit faster than I usually do. Nah, what are you going to do? I really enjoyed this conversation with Jennifer. I learned a lot from her and uh, really appreciated her time. I trust if you are in any way interested in the space of technology, AI, ethics, industry, academia, human well-being, whatever your jam might be, you're going to find something here. And without further ado, I give you my first conversation of 2024 with Dr. Jennifer Bolger. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. This is a really exciting moment for me because it is uh, the beginning of season three and there's been one thing on my mind in particular over the last couple of months, and I know I'm late to the party, but that thing is AI. And I think the universe works in mysterious ways, and I'm humbled to have the opportunity here to, to speak with Dr. Jennifer Boger. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, the universe works in mysterious ways, and we met, I guess, through a common connection. Uh, Martin Ryan, who just had on the podcast a couple of months ago, who I met completely by chance. I guess we connected as a result of that conversation. Before we jump into all of the different things that we're going to jump into, I'd love to, to get a sense of who you are and how you find yourself in this moment doing what you do. Yeah, I, I think it's such a good question. And as you say, the world works in mysterious ways. So 
Certainly it's not like I woke up as a kid and had this dream of going into AI and ESG. Rather, I like to think of myself as insatiably curious and a problem solver um, and liking to tinker. And ever since I was really small, just a passion for how can we make the world a more fair, better place? So the first profession I ever wanted to be was much to the embarrassment of my mom was a go-go dancer, but that was short-lived. It just sounded fun because of go-go and dancing. This is back in the early Sure, yeah. Right? Then the next one was cashier. Again, much to the delight of my mom. Um, Also short-lived, but then shortly after that was lawyer. And I stuck with that for a while because the idea of someone who could help bring more justice and more fairness to the world was it was a really enticing one for me. Um, and then fast forward, really into science, engineering dad, all the things. And so went down the engineering path. So I have an undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering and a master's in biomed. Again, with this shared love of how can we help people? How can we make things better? Along with like, loving to do things and create things with my hands and how does how do things work mash together I then ran a research lab at UT at University of Toronto for a number of years doing technology for supporting older adults mm-hmm. and a, a big focus of mine in fact my master's degree was developing an artificially intelligent system that could help people living with dementia, like quite late stage dementia through the task of hand washing. And it used computer vision and artificial intelligence. This was back in 2000, 2001. So right when these concepts were actually emerging at the stage where they were just mature enough that they could be applied. Where, you know, it wasn't just theoretical anymore. You could actually deploy them in real world instances and see them making decisions on their own. A lot of cutting edge algorithms that friends of mine in grad school were developing. I was then sort of testing in this setup with a camera over a sink and hand washing. And that was all fueled by my grandmother having dementia for, for many years. Okay. And again, me seeing how that impacted my family and visiting her in long-term care and, saying, you know, there has to be a way we can do this better, a way we can bring more dignity to this experience and bring more support to the families and paid caregivers who are helping, you know, as necessary. And then it was through my work with people living with dementia and developing technologies, a lot of them which were embedded, so they were invisible or very subtle because I was designing for people's houses where people don't want cameras front and center. Right, right. But then also using AI to do some supplementary decision-making to help with any cognitive misfunction or, or lower ability in cognition, which tends to accompany dementia. But then a lot of those, those systems focus on things like wandering and tracking and, and other things and a lot of monitoring right? Because that's, that's a big difficulty for a lot of caregivers when someone with dementia is living at home. You have to kind of keep an eye to make sure usually stuff's going fine, but sometimes it's not. Um, and you, the sooner you figure out it's not 
going so well, the sooner you can help and the less kind of mess there is for everyone. But that's exhausting. There's so much in there. I always find it interesting to just understand what motivates people. Sometimes there's this this genesis somewhere at some point in, in a person's life that kind of leads them down a certain path. And so, you know, you saw the experience of, of your of your grandmother. Um, you wanted to make the world a better place and have some sort of positive impact in terms of fairness and equity. And somehow you end up in the field of biomedical engineering. But then perhaps almost serendipitously ending up bumping up against AI and seeing how that can help. When we first talked, this really humbled me a bit. When I think about AI, I'm typically thinking, perhaps naively, about the future, thinking about how this is going to affect future generations. Mm-hmm. And yet you have opened my eyes to there's an entire world of conversation around how AI and technology helps older generations, right? And what role it can potentially play. I'm curious from your perspective, what is the role that technology can actually play in making anyone's life better, right? Or what role should it be playing? Uh, the the <laughs> the ultimate question. Let's start at the end. <laughs> it's enormous. And part of where I sort of jumped into a deep dive and started deviating from just how how sexy can we make the technology, how cool the algorithm, how fast can we make it run, and really started to think about how does it impact people mm-hmm. was through developing AI embedded systems for people with dementia, living in their homes with other family members and all these questions started coming up. Like in theory, this is great. You've got a system that can help support the caregiver and can enable more independence. It can, you know, it's pretty versatile, all these things. But then you run up very quickly into like the questions about, well, who decides? Mm-hmm. If one key, if one person and anyone in a family knows these situations, one person wants something and someone else does not. Right? Yeah you know, who wins? And somehow when you put AI into the mix, because it's, and this is just my belief in the situation, but I think because AI adds in this cognizant decision-making capacity, it's bringing in another entity in a way. Mm -hmm. We're, We're still a ways away from true, like, peer style entity with AI, but we're reaching the uncanny valley where it's getting in air quotes smart enough that we're starting to see, okay, keeping going down this path, it's not a matter of if, it's when Right. we're going to have an entity that is as intelligent and likely more intelligent one would argue in a lot of ways, AI is more intelligent than humans in terms of some things it can do. Um, that's coming. So we're reaching, I don't know, have you ever heard the term of uncanny valley? No, I haven't. That's a new term to me. Ah, so this is a great term. It's used a lot in robotics um, where you have either robots that look nothing like a human or they they might be humanoid, but they're clearly a robot. Right. You know, they've got like square heads and big blue kind of eyes and straight line mouths and whatnot. And you're like, okay, it's a humanoid, but it's a robot. That's fun. And then you have robots who look exactly like humans, 
and then you can't tell the difference. But the Uncanny Valley is where they look so much like a human, but something in the way they're doing their facial expression or wiggling their eyebrows or, you know, what have you is just kind of off. And instead of feeling like, ooh, you're like, ugh, you know, it's kind of like the idea of a zombie versus a human. I just, I actually just had that experience yesterday. I come across on LinkedIn actually that apparently there's some network that's launching Channel One News. I, I, th- I think might be the name, but it's entirely AI generated. So I actually came across the video that looked like it was an announcement or an ad of some sort about the network, and the anchor that's announcing the channel seemed a little bit off enough so that I was like, okay, either there's a lack of that expected charisma you, you would want to see in a, in a news anchor or mm-hmm. something's not quite right. And then, you know, moments later find out that it is in fact an entirely AI generated avatar over an uh, AI set and they're sourcing their news apparently responsibly through journalists. And then I found myself in this weird place, that uncanny value you're talking about, because mm-hmm. I actually didn't think it was an AI, but I suspected that there was something off about the presenter. And then I felt myself being like unexpectedly judgmental about this person who's presenting, knowing nothing about them, only to find out that they're actually an AI. And then I was both confused and feeling bad about my initial kind of assumptions. (laughs) That was just the reaction to the experience of watching the ad. I don't even know how I feel about the entire enterprise. Mm -hmm. We're kind of entering this, I guess, this uncanny value that you're talking about where it's going to be next to impossible to d- distinguish whether you're talking to an actual person, a representation of that person, an AI. Um, mm-hmm. And and what does that mean to us in terms of our, our relationship with the world? I, we're just coming to grips with having remote relationships, let alone remote relationships with things that are actually just machines and algorithms. 100%. And so much to unpack there, right? It doesn't mean don't do it. I think First step, which a lot of people get to pretty quick, is at least be transparent about it, Mm -hmm. right? So you call it AI news or something at the bottom, and then it's fine. Then as a consumer, you can understand it's AI-based news where, I mean, we don't know whether it was curated by AI or not, but it's presented by AI. Okay, fine, right? I think this is trick number one is if we're going to learn, well, we have to learn somehow to live with AI. And a big part of that is understanding where we're interacting with it and by how much. Because only then can we decide how much we want to interact with it. But we can also think critically about how is it impacting us? It's harder to answer that question when you don't even know when it's impacting Mm -hmm. you. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe I'm just charitable in general, but I don't think most people go into technology related fields in science, whether it's robotics, whether it's AI, any of these spaces with malicious intent. I think Mm -hmm. generally, in general, people are either just incredibly curious. They just love tinkering. They love technology. They love to pull the levers and push the buttons and tweak the variables and see what happens, right? That's a very healthy part of human evolution, right? Like that tinkering has allowed us to get to this point. 100%. And then you have people that just, you know, they might be motivated by something that's happened in their family. You know, there's a motivation that's kind of deep rooted like your motivation. So they find that this particular avenue 
can be an avenue to foster good, right? Like if I only had this technology available when this was happening with that family member, maybe it would have made a difference. And yet somehow we keep finding ourselves on the precipice of craziness because somehow the technology that we give rise to almost feels like it's running away from us in some ways. And we don't know the repercussions it's going to have when it's actually out there in the wild until you see the repercussions. Mm-hmm. 100% true. And I guarantee you, whatever you build, people will find the entire gamut of things that they can do with it from incredible good to how can anyone try to even do that sort of not good (laughs) implications. The technology is the tool. It's how we use it that then determines our reaction and values toward it. So just like any tool, AI has immense potential for good and is in fact doing a lot of wonderful things. You know, just looking at medical imaging is a great example Mm -hmm. of where AI is really shining in its ability to act as a collaborator tool, if you will, for medical professionals to do analysis of imaging. Right. So it's able to maybe see things that people may miss. It's able to highlight things to make sure that they are seen, to bring it to attention so that medical professionals can take a look and decide, you know, what needs to be done. It can provide some hints. And it's a really interesting example, I think, because it's a, it's a relatively boxed example where you have medical images, which are Hmm. taken in highly controlled conditions of specific parts of the body. They're very well labeled and you have millions of them to train on. And then you have professionals who are making decisions and recording those decisions carefully, and you can also assess the outcomes. So if you have a training model, say on cancer is one that is used for a lot, you can see after the operation is done and the stuff biopsy was a cancer. So you're able to, you know, train with, you know, one of the most confined boxed problems that you can hope for in a way. I mean, it's hard to kind of conceive of harms that could come from that type of use of, of AI with images in a controlled setting taken by, you know, sophisticated professionals and equipment that's stored with a level of security. And even if those images got out for whatever reason, I don't know that you could necessarily exploit them terribly, right? Like they don't have that much sort of exploitative utility in the same way, in part because they're boxed in through so many means. But most of the current iteration in AI is really thanks to the internet, right? The fact that it has access to data, the fact that large language models can exist, the fact that you can connect semantics and two ideas is entirely because there's a massive open data set. Mm-hmm. Um, which which has a huge potential on the upside for good and evolution and, and advancements. But then it has, you know, the flip side, like so much potential to be misused. Yes. Yes, tons. And I think, you know, my, my current playground, the current space I've been working in for the past few years now is in ESG, environmental social governance, which is in and of itself immensely complicated relatively new, Mm -hmm. tons of data, but 
to date, it's very disparate and sparse compared to the sheer volume that people would like to see. And so ESG in a way, um, it wouldn't exist in the manner that it is today without AI, because the sheer amounts and the types of analysis we want to do with it is just far orders of magnitude bigger than most corporations could possibly mm. support. So it's this, like so many of our tools and I, my dad's voice is, my dad's an engineer and an optimist. And he's convinced that humanity is going to save itself by creating a tool to save humanity <laughs> and forever. And still I'm like, wow, that's really worked well for us so far, <laughs> right? So it's this very interesting juxtaposition where you're right, you know, the technology, it always has for, throughout history, it's run away from us, you know, and we're chasing it and we design these tools to help us catch up, but then it just pushes us as well toward the next kind of evolution of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I think about just this, um, oh, the other great example from my mom of this letter that was written by a guy to another guy talking about his 20 year old son and how, you know, what the hell is wrong with kids these days and so disrespectful and, can you believe what they're doing and they're not learning the way we did and society is going to just go to hell in no time. And what, and it was, it was discovered on a clay tablet from like a thousand BC. Wow. Okay. Um, So this is nothing new. Dads have been tough always, I guess. Right. And (laughs) I think the question before us is, is the technology starting to out evolve us? So is the technology, not just the pace of technology, changing the way our societies operate, how we think and do, because they have for, you know, millennia now, but is it starting to to go at a pace that is so fast, our biological selves cannot get our heads around it and keep pace with it? That's where I think we're starting to decide, are we going to humanize the tech that we build so that we're almost dumbing it down so that our human cells are able to operate sensibly with it? Or are we going to just let it evolve itself past our capabilities and figure out a way to interact with it as, right. or, or something else, you know, and Black Mirror has all sorts of options about what something else might look like. And so we're at a, a very, very, almost, interesting time about where I feel like we're on the cusp of some really big choices about where we go next. I, I agree with all of that. In one way, however, I feel like every generation feels, or maybe most generations feel that they're unique. They're at a unique uh, moment in time in some way. And, and maybe I'm biased because this is the time I'm alive in, but it does feel truly different. There's an idea I've been wrestling with pretty much my whole life. I think my son just ripped the band-aid off again when I was having a conversation with him about good and bad. The human condition is a strange one because for some reason, the story of humanity has been one of the push and pull between good and bad creation and destruction. It shows up everywhere. Like it shows up in most Eastern philosophical and, and religious traditions, you know, the yin and the yang, 
Um, mm-hmm. In Hinduism, you have a trinity of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. And they kind of operate in a cycle. It feels like you can just leave it at religion or myth or old stories. But then I think about the advent of technology, particularly in the 20th century. The internet, initially a military project. GPS, which allows us to navigate through Waze and Google Maps and so you can drive to grandpa's house so that you can get to, you know, your friend that you haven't seen in three years. You can navigate their city as if you've been there 50 times. Um, mm-hmm. GPS technology, also a military project. AI, a lot of the potential really accelerated uses of it, even things like in the space of learning technology, there's certain analytics standards that have been commissioned by the Department of Defense. And I find it interesting that many of our most productive technologies that have actually brought so much good to the world have actually come out of a military project, which Mm. is, I mean, on one hand, you can say it's for defense purposes, it's for intelligence purposes and whatnot. But ultimately, the end game there is that in the event that where it's needed, it's going to be used to overpower and destroy the enemy. And I wonder why it's almost like that condition pushes us forward. And then we kind of have to course correct and say, how can we use this elsewhere? I don't know if we know another way in the 20th century to evolve. Yeah, it's just it's something that I've been wrestling with for a long time. Yeah, no, that it's a it's a really interesting, really interesting observation, right? And I, I think you're right. Is I think the evolution of technology happens whenever we push it to its limits, and it so happens that we invest an awful lot of time and innovation in defense mm-hmm. war and that and we always have so you look at some of the earliest artifacts we've got it's how, how to get food how to stay warm or cool mm-hmm. enough right and how and how to either attack or defend your tribe right and that was that's a lot of your time and energy is spent on those things right mm-hmm. um and i think that hasn't changed as much as we might like to think it has. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Terry Pratchett, but there's a great line no. in one of his books that says, uh, civilization is 24 hours and three square meals away from barbarianism. And, you know, it's it's true. Take away our electricity. Yep. First 24 hours is novel. And after that, people start getting a lot less comfortable fast, right? <laughs> like, you know, so long as your heat's on and and your fridge is okay and, you know, you've got gas in the car, we're all good. And there's been so many books and everything yeah, written about for sure. what happens after that. And frankly, I'm an evolutionist. I feel a lot, so much of our behavior can be explained by how we've lived for thousands of years. Right. And we like to think we can uh, outlogic it or overpower it. But a lot of what drives us, frankly, is no different now. We just go about getting, fulfilling our needs in different ways than we did. Yeah. Some people arguing, you know, digital tribalism is nowhere near as fulfilling or as healthy as physical you know, having your physical tribe, whether it's, you know, 50 to 100 people that you can physically access Mm -hmm. versus thousands online is kind of where we're at now. One of my favorite books in the last 
I'd say five years. It's a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a a war correspondent. I think he spent time in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and he has, I guess, some uh, Indigenous American or Native American heritage somewhere in his family as well. So he draws on some stories from an uncle who is an elder. But he basically weaves together what I found just to be such a compelling narrative of our current moment, but how it's anchored in that hunter-gatherer evolutionary history. You know, Mm -hmm. so he talks about, because he spent so much time out in battlefields with soldiers and small platoons, and the kind of camaraderie that they build with each other, the kind of love and brotherhood or, you know, sisterhood that they build with each other. They have a true sense of selflessness with that group of people. Mm-hmm. And so he talks in particular about how in the modern world, in the context of war, you know, like soldiers come back from wherever that war was, which was thousands of miles away. They come back to civil society. They can't engage with civil society because no one there really understood what this person went through. Mm-hmm. They, and they, they see that, you know, that level of camaraderie isn't available. And so they miss the experience, the, the camaraderie that they had there. He had similar stories of cancer patients who've gone through intense bouts of chemo building community with other patients that they might be sitting around in a in a room at the hospital all with their IV drips on and how cancer patients who ended up going to remission or they managed to beat it and they're back in everyday life they miss that community we yep. as yep. a species like we are communal animals we can get to know up to 150 people that you can trust and we've created so many things in society that kind of move us away from that i think social media has kind of exasperated it in some ways with a false promise of creating community, but maybe that's a separate topic. So when I see us negotiating technology, to me, we're the same bags of meat that we were 50,000, 100,000 years ago. Cognitively, we might be slightly different, but the biggest innovation that's happened in that time is actually culture that Mm -hmm. allowed us, culture and writing, it allowed us to offload what was in the brain to a group of people And so I think all of that's important for us to understand when we're actually thinking about what do we do with AI? Oh yeah, 100%. We really are building a mirror of ourselves. How Mm. do we want, how do we want to look? And this is, this is the kind of interesting thing. AI does in many circumstances mirror us. Um, There's a wonderful example of, the earlier case of use in a hospital system to triage. It was somewhere down in southern U.S. And they built the system to help move patients through more efficiently and with good intention, see more patients quicker, people who have more severe cases, get to the top faster, all the things. And they purposefully left race out of it because they don't want that to be a factor. And lo and behold, it started racially triaging people. And they're like, what the, and you know, they shut it off and then went and had a look and tried to figure it out. And lo and behold, it's because of all the proxy data. So Mm. because the AI is trained on who's been triaged and certain demographics are more likely to come to the hospital are more likely to have money to pay for treatment, are more likely, you know, all the probabilities and and then how that impacts access to the medical system. And because that's the only data they had to train on, the data itself is racially biased. Then people who show up with certain even types of symptoms 
are racially biased because of prior data set. Wow, training. that is, it's fascinating because, and maybe bias is something we can get into a little bit. We treat all bias as if it's bad, but at the end of the day, bias in general is what's allowed us to evolve, is allowed us to survive, right? You, you can't possibly know everything and have all the data about any situation at any time. It's not possible. So you have to have some sort of shorthand mental model to be able to make a conclusion. And those shorthands can be wrong. But it sounds like in this case, the algorithms looked at this proxy data and it wasn't looking for race to be the differentiator between triaging or not. But all of this proxy data that it is kind of working towards is the kind of the expanded version of the shorthand for race in some ways, right? Like where a human might see this patient and say, okay, I'm going to triage them or not based on how they look. Even when they do that, they're generally doing it because they probably had some sort of experience that's led them to that bias in the first place. It almost feels like the AI suddenly interpolated all of those data points and sort of manifested as a bias. Yeah. So that's part of it. But the other part is the system itself is systemically racist. So the people who are able to access the healthcare system Mm -hmm. is biased. And so, you know, when we talk about bias and you're right, we can't get rid of it. Everyone's biased. You're biased all over the place. You have to be to make decisions every day. (laughs) There's nothing wrong, as you say, with bias. What is wrong is when we don't recognize that there is a bias, and especially when that bias is hurtful. Mm -hmm. Um, And even worse is when someone points out there may be a bias and we don't look deeper. That is the biggest one of all, because we're not going to be able to spot them all, even with best intentions, to, to design a system that's completely free of bias is a very tall order. You have to have an enormous data set that's been, you know, very carefully and robustly collected. Will we ever get there? We might, especially there's a lot of really cool ideas being tested out and putting into effect of systems to test bias within other systems. But what's really important is that when someone flags bias going on, We have to be, again, transparent about that. We have to listen, and then we have to to do action. So, for example, this implementation of AI in this case underscored the immense amount of bias there is in certain healthcare systems right? right, towards certain groups of people. Okay, what are you going to now do about that? Right. And some people point out, well, when you know where the bias is coming from, you can try to use AI to actually correct for bias, do a bias correction. That when you know that a certain type of bias exists, you can then use AI to fix bias and to start, you know, having a more even playing field. But to do that, you're now getting into a really values laden conversation about. What is a level playing field to who? Right. Yeah. You know, is it even a possibility in the system that exists right now? And all these other questions, but it it is a good, a good start to to tackling that problem. Yeah. Um, I think my concern in general is that bias is just by definition almost today in like the popular lexicon, a bad word. 
And I think we have to be a little bit more sophisticated about it. So let's just take race and bias, for example. There are certain ethnic groups and racial groups that, for whatever reason, through perhaps evolutions of subpopulations in certain parts of the world, plus lifestyle, etc., are more predisposed to certain types of conditions, whether it's glaucoma, whether it's diabetes, you know, heart disease, perhaps certain type of cancers, etc., etc. And so I think that, I mean, this is just a random thought experiment, but like if a given patient who happens to be like South Asian, like so South Asian men over the age of 50 tend to index pretty high when it comes to heart conditions um, mm-hmm. and diabetes, for example. So if a South Asian man in that demographic happens to be screened by an AI as part of that screening, to me, on one hand, somebody would say it's a bias to screen for diabetes or to do to call for like secondary or tertiary screenings or tests for a particular condition. But from my perspective, if you actually know that this group of people based on the data that's available, because the science that's collected, it wasn't necessarily biased in the collection of that data. This is just something that's been observed over a very long time. To Mm -hmm. me, it would actually be a positive bias to say this person is South Asian. We should probably check this person out for these things a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And, And I feel like that type of bias scrutiny is also being held in the same way as where there's like systemic bias, where all of a sudden certain people from certain socioeconomic groups or zip codes aren't getting access. Those are both cases of bias, but we have to be intelligent about how we handle both of them. But right now I feel like bias just gets shut down and it's the end of the conversation, which Mm -hmm. I think is kind of the end of the story then, like, because we just don't have another way to operate. Yeah, no, I agree. And so people use the word probability. (laughs) A mm. lot, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> we have a higher probability of developing <laughs> heart disease, which that's true. You know, it, it, it changes. As soon as you say probability, it's like, oh, now it's an equation. Now it's science. Now that's okay. But it's also the truth. It's your probability. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you will develop heart disease. It just means if you're a South Asian man, you have a higher probability. Your propensity for such things is higher. Bias in my, the way I define bias is it's more of a, a learned opinion towards something mm-hmm. that may or may not be based on any facts um, is part. And number two is bias is something that the person holding it is not usually aware of or not always aware of. So you can be operating on some opinion that you have not even realizing that you're operating on this opinion and that that's where you know that's where it gets dangerous and that's where it's absolutely crucial for us to check each other's work if you will you know right yeah put it in front of as many different groups with as many different experiences as possible be like yeah uh does anything fishy here going on and then listen to what they say that's the other thing that so you mean do like, science uh, basically people will, <laughs> people will tell you stuff or even you know ai one of the first uses of ai was looking at climate change data again another problem that's very complex and lends itself well because there's all sorts of data points out there that have been monitored for a long time mm-hmm. So it takes a very complicated data space, but there's enough of it over enough time um, that AI, which can analyze it in ways that humans themselves maybe cannot. And it can answer questions about climate for us, which we, some of us just choose to ignore because we'd rather not hear that message, you know? And so 
there's all these examples of technology doing what we ask it to. And that's, we're still at that stage with AI is it still does what we tell it to. Um, it's just what it can do is much more sophisticated and has a much greater mm -hmm. impact um, and how it's doing it. We don't even, we don't always understand quite how it's getting to the answers or to the actions that it arrives at. So um, this is a massive push right now in AI and I think is vitally important really is transparency and explicability, right? Like, great. If you have powerful tools, amazing, but you should be able to get them to like break it down. How did you get from A to B, right? And understand the process as a human, at some right. sort of human level, if it's a tool, if we're using the tool, we ought to understand how that tool works and what it's doing. This is where it starts to get really questionable though, because a system that behaves with that level of complexity that has so many different parameters and variables involved, even the brightest of humans can't conceive of that many factors at one time. We architected the system for a degree of complexity. Now, perhaps the complexity has operated in a way that was surprising or, or unexpected. But I think we get to a point where I don't see how we can even possibly understand and fully explain that complexity. Because I'm mean, like you said, with the climate change data, at some point you would need an AI to explain to you how it arrived at those conclusions. But how would we even validate that as humans, right? Yes. Th that methodology yep. made sense. So I think it's almost like accepting that there is a level of complexity here. And on the complexity and bias thing, like i I don't have an engineering background at all. I usually just get myself into trouble in having these conversations. But I want to kind of run a, a hypothetical thought experiment by you just to see, A, is this concern even valid? And B, I think it's a good segue into the conversation around, we've given rise to this thing. Now there are ethical and social implications. I wondered for a long time with the move towards autonomous vehicles in particular, automobiles, mm -hmm. These cars use a variety of different technologies. They've got cameras, LIDAR, a whole bunch of different sensors to basically gauge the world around them. And very quickly, with very low latency, they're able to engage actuators and steer the wheel and, and make complex decisions. Those are all really impressive things. But I wondered if this scenario could ever actually play out. You've got an autonomous vehicle driving down the road. It finds itself in a situation unexpectedly where there's a young mother pushing a baby in a stroller on one side of the road and four teenagers on the other side of the road, the car has to make a calculation based on probabilities on which way it's going to swerve to avoid an even more cataclysmic outcome. And it swerves in the direction of the four teenagers or the mother with the baby. And I think no one would necessarily run this simulation explicitly, or maybe they would, but I wonder in that moment, if you were to actually unpack the decision tree that followed in that car, did it value four teenagers less than a, a mother with a baby? Did it value two lives less than four? If these four teenagers happened to be black for whatever reason, and there wasn't enough training data there, and it didn't recognize them, maybe I'm, I'm getting a little bit outlandish here, but the point is, if that type of a decision could happen in that specific scenario, if it was a person driving the car, I think we kind of accept the fact that that is a unique circumstance. But the moment you roll out a vehicle, a model of car that might sell mm -hmm. half a million or a million units in a year, 
that's all running on the same software with the same algorithms, that's probably been through the same simulations, and they encounter certain types of situations, an unforeseen bias has now been rolled out to a million cars as -hmm. opposed to one individual who just found themselves in a a tough spot. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's just crazy talk, if that scenario even makes sense. Yeah, it does. I used to actually open my class on ethics. I used to teach uh, one of the classes I taught at Waterloo was biomedical engineering ethics. And that is exactly the scenario that I'd open up with. You know, your car, you're going to hit someone, you know, it's 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 basically a, a version of the thought experiment that's been around forever where there's the guy, you know, the trains coming, the trolley problem, mm-hmm. trolleys coming down the tracks you have the lever do you pull the lever or not and you know and then the different philosophies about whether you pull the lever or not and this is a manifestation of the trolley problem where you have Mm. two undesirable outcomes how do you justify the decision you make you must make a decision how do you justify it and then mit a few years ago now actually they ran exactly what you're talking about where they crowdsourced who does the car hit and they presented all these scenarios with autonomous driving car and it was like old lady versus teenager different races wow right and they crowd i thought i just totally made this up okay yeah but brilliant clearly you're on to something brilliant so good job because like yeah so it it was really interesting because the question was one what is public at large you know what do they choose but two ought we crowdsource how our cars behave who decides Mm. right that's sort of the the meat of this type of question who decides how the car behaves like the car has to make a decision in this awful situation but who who plays god who tells the car hit that if you're presented with this choice do that right how do we how do we do that? And then come interesting questions about, and you see this in terms of responses. There's all sorts of ageism depending on who you are, racism, sexism, all the isms right. come out on who you should hit. And so then comes the question: Well, when you look at cultures, cultures, different cultures have a lot of different isms. So. Right. Do cars drive differently in different cultures? So if you're an autonomous car in North America, do you hit this group of people? And if you're over in the Middle East, do you hit that group? And, you know, like, and if you drive across the border, does your car now, you know, hit different Uh, people? Yeah, which value system applies? Right. And so, so there you can really take, it's a, it really is a lovely thought experiment that's pretty accessible to most people because it's an, it's an experience that we have in common is this idea of driving you know Mm -hmm. everyone either drives a car or has ridden in one almost everyone good 90 percent so it's this shared human experience where you also understand consequences of having to make quick choices and you know it's a very tangible thing and self-driving cars are a thing and so it's a nice example of how values start working into our technology and how eye of the beholder really impact how we expect yeah. our technology to behave when it's doing high level decision making, right? There's and- a, also a lot that on one hand, we're giving rise to 
some sort of new entity that is on some dimensions way more intelligent and sophisticated than any human could ever expect to be, right? Like it's got the entire internet basically at its digital fingertips that no human could possibly do. And on the other hand, our ability to actually understand this organ between our ears and how it actually functions, how it gives rise to consciousness, we haven't even scratched the surface of this. A young child has the ability to recognize a cat or a bear or a balloon or something. And yet we're constantly hit with thousands and thousands of CAPTCHAs. Pick the balloon in this image, right? Find the bus so that we can train these AI data sets. We very quickly build a mental model of the world in such a mysterious way that I find kind of fascinating. And, and the one example that came to mind, I think it was a Microsoft project basically looking to differentiate from photographs and they trained it with a data set to differentiate between men and women. Um, mm. And in that, it was pretty consistently accurate in differentiating men and women, with the exception of when the photos were of subjects who were black, right? Mm -hmm. And in that mm -hmm. case, its hit rate to be able to identify women from men was abysmal. And mm -hmm. I think the team was looking into like, hey, why is this the case? And I think what they found was you know, there's probably a different facial dimensions and features and whatnot that are part of the factor. But one of the things that the AI had actually focused in on that nobody had deliberately pointed to was red lips. So mm. black women just, it's less common that they're wearing lipstick than white women, for example. So if you've got the training data happens to be leaning to white women who are wearing lipstick, it's not going to pick that up. And that wasn't something that anyone consciously fed in. And I, to me, that was an example of the AI has got a bias now in, in much the same way that a child would have a bias. When I see a person that looks like this, I think they're a woman. I see a person who looks like that. I think that they're a man. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes that bias isn't deliberate in any way. It's, it's actually just accidental. And then we have to look ourselves in this mirror and say, okay, now what? What do we do about this? What does this yeah. mean? Yeah, 100%. 100%. That's a great example. And it's accessible because it's something we can see. Mm -hmm. So something that keeps me awake at night a little bit is that humans are terrible still and probably always will be at truly abstract thought, most of us. If we can't see it, it's very hard for us to conceptualize truly what's going on. So when we even talk about examples of AI and bias, it's almost always around things that have tangible mm -hmm. outcomes. You can see that the set of people are wearing lipstick and the set aren't. And we figured out that's why, right? Mm -hmm. You can, the car problem, you can see, you can imagine the car is running over one set of people or another. Where you get to a sort of playgrounds where it's really being deployed, big data sets, financial data sets things like this, where it's an enormous amount of data, mm -hmm. but it's very, very hard to conceptualize. Well, what does that actually mean? And when is it, when is it going off track and how do we detect that? And how do we figure out what's going on and how do we correct that? Um, and certainly by no means, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but I, I honestly would love to see, 
this is not not the position you know this is just me jen <laughs> position but i think the world needs a lot more sandboxes for mm. pushing the envelope of ai in ways where we're openly sharing what we're doing that's not just academia but ways that companies can play with really cutting edge stuff sometimes in higher risk scenarios and honestly share what they've learned so that we can learn together because this technology is super powerful and it's evolving super quickly. So if we don't want to make some really big missteps, then we have to share where we've gone wrong and help each other learn from where we've gone wrong. And so that requires a lot of trust. And I'm not sure how we're going to do that. Why do you, why do you think that that is not the case today? Is that just a question of the, 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 the commercial incentive structures? Is it that there's this fervor for competition and getting ahead? And so in that sense, sharing isn't beneficial what do you think is is the reason there? It's a lot of things. Definitely uh, having a commercial edge in IP is certainly one. Um, Risk of bad PR, risk of being sued, risk of other repercussions is certainly another one. Risk of misuse is on a lot of people's minds. So if it's truly cutting edge and something that's not well understood... If you're super open about it, there's potential for real misuse where it's also going to be very difficult to mitigate or otherwise detect, deter misuse because we're not even sure how it works properly yet or how to how to use it properly yet. So it's a lot of things. It's, it's very, very complicated. I think we have to talk across disciplines, across sectors, like a lot more. There has to be way better flow of communication. But again, that's that's very tricky um, because if you don't share the whole context, then it's hard to understand what's going on. But a lot of companies are not able to share the whole context right. because that violations of privacy and all sorts of other things that they're also committed to. So, so a lot of systems are being built internally especially bigger corp, right? Build mm-hmm. their own internal systems and they keep them that way, partially for security reasons, partially for liability, partially for competitive edge. That makes sense to me and I agree with that. I think that the thing that's still missing for me is this alignment on what we're actually trying to, if I can be like crude in business terms, like optimize for, Right. And that's why Martin, he kind of opened my eyes to this example. I hadn't really thought about civil aviation and airlines and all of that. I think it's a good example because it's a complex system, albeit that it evolved over several decades and we had time to catch up. We had time to legislate. If there was problems, if there was plane crashes, regulators cracked down and tried to figure out how we can avoid it. But ultimately, everybody in that ecosystem actually finds common cause in safety. If you optimize towards safety, it's best for an airline, it's best for the airports, it's best for the Boeings and the Airbuses and the other manufacturers, it's obviously best for the passengers, it's best for cargo, 
there's actually no one except maybe insurance companies, but there's no one else in the mix that does not benefit from safety. And so I think that that's a good example of we're all collectively in this together. I mean, we don't need to fly. We were fine just riding on horses and elephants and camels and walking thousands of miles before. We decided we want to fly. Okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do it safely. We must all agree on that. And we agreed on it. And it is kind of a miracle that it works as well as it does. I don't feel like we have that North Star in the case of like modern web technology and in the case of AI. Like, Mm -hmm. so even if there was sandboxes, how does everyone kind of agree that we're all going to benefit if we do this this way? Yeah, it's a a really good question because, and I loved that example. I listened to that episode. I'm like, yes, you know, and as you guys got into the difference with aviation is you're literally falling from the sky. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, again, it's a very tangible outcome that a human, whether they've flown or not, can kind of empathize with how awful that would be. And so zero tolerance, whereas most AI applications are not that catastrophic. So, Mm -hmm. well, just a little here, just a little there. It's not that bad. Kind of propensity goes up. The other tricky thing about AI and, and this took me, you know, this is an aha moment for me when something like an airplane does not change after you build it. Mm. You build the plane and that's it. It doesn't change. You can test it six ways till Sunday and then you can build another plane that's, you know, 99.9% repeating exactly like the plane you just built. Right. And you can do that, you know, and then copy paste, Right. So you can put it through a lot of scenarios and have a lot of tolerances and a lot of like cutoffs that are more black and white of tolerances because the plane itself is not evolving. Mm-hmm. You can optimize it. You can make it better. But once you've cast the part and once you've screwed down the nut, that's it. It stays, you know, it might come loose, but you just tighten it again. It's very predictable how it's going to operate by and large and you can put tolerances on things and everything else. The AI, it's an open book. Anything you can imagine, you can basically throw it at that. So it's a, it's a a different, again, entity is the best word I've found for it. It's a different, it's not a thing. I think we have to stop thinking about AI as a thing. It's not a, a thing to me. It's, it's an entity it, mm-hmm. more increasingly becoming so. So again, I don't want to over, over blow it and say it's an intelligent being. It's not, but it's headed in that direction. You know, it's not, again, we're reaching that uncanny valley where it's yeah. like, okay, you can kind of see where this is going a little bit. Um, I agree with you that there's an immediacy in a car accident, a plane crash. All, all those things are very visceral and it's very obvious. Uh, that's a very straightforward thing. Other things in the, in the realm of digital and AI I, could be levels of abstraction from it. But even when the evidence is in our face, we have somehow gotten to this weird point where we just ignore it anyway. So Social media is another great example. I think that probably the early pioneers and the intent was to connect the world and use this technology in a way that's worst case scenario. It's fun. Best case scenario, you know, maybe people meet each other and fall in love or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
I'll be charitable enough to say that the big social media players, I don't think deliberately at the outset said, we're going to run this and make tons of money deliberately by ruining society. I think what they found is by ruining society, optimizing towards the dopamine hit, keeping people constantly angry, frustrated, alone, in doing that, they were able to drive engagement, which then drives ad spend and and all of the other things that drive those broken revenue models. So they didn't go out looking for that. But once they found it, they're like, yeah, okay, this is going to make us more money and we'll just keep going that way. And in the course of that, thousands of people commit suicide Fights are breaking out in places like there's very real world consequences that happen as a result of this. There's also the flip side. There's friends find or family finding each other after decades being away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all sorts of beautiful stories that, that come from social media, which are amazing. And I think they are they're the part of the mirror that you want to kind of look in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all these other parts in the mirror, parts of you that you just almost want to pretend are not there, but they're very clearly there. I wonder in this case with AI, at some point we might start to see more very obvious problems and yet still turn a blind eye to them. Oh, yeah, we will. I think it's one of these, my goodness, humanity, are we going to learn from ourselves? Maybe, you know, and as much as I agree with you on the social media front, you know, you're starting to see now, not everyone, of course, but there's a portion of people who are abandoning social media. Because they're like, you know what, this is just not worth it. (laughs) Or they're using apps that connect them specifically with people in real life. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're using the technology to create real life communities. And, And to the point too, like every tech, everyone has to choose what works for them. Right. Right. Um, Having choice. I think that's important. And again, transparency of, okay, just be aware here's some of the risks of using this type of app. This is what we've seen in the past. And we're starting to have more evidence now about intended or unintended impacts of using certain types of software. So as much as, and I agree, social media has done considerable damage to society. It's done good stuff as well and some damaging stuff. Maybe that came at, a wonderfully opportune time where we had that before AI right? as a kind of waiting pool, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to kind of splash around in and be like, Hey, Hey. And again, another shared experience of humanity where most people who have a mobile device have experienced social media to some extent. Right. So they kind of can see and had a taste for it. And, you know, same thing, chat GBT blew the roof off because now your average person with access to the internet could kind of poke around and, and everyone's like, whoa. And there suddenly, you know, the collective is starting to get a taste of what AI can do and what this means. And it's, it's so good mm-hmm. for all the other stuff that's happening. It, I do have to say that that is fantastic because it has started a global conversation where it's right. not just any one, uh, again, elitist is the wrong word, but spe- any specialized group or any one group is not the only one in the conversation, but rather it's become a collective conversation right. yeah. where 
it, you can choose to participate. Not everyone is participating in it, but if it is something that you want to participate in, now you can. Now you can, you know, give it a poke and see how you feel about it and, you know, decide whether you want to get involved in that conversation and and how and all all the things, right? right. I mean allowing children to start experiencing AI from a very early age because, you know, sort of back to where we started in this conversation, how, how do you feel about it? And what do you, what do you do with it? Our kids are going to be surrounded by AI information and AI tools. That's oh bonus thought that I always want to push out there and almost an evangelist on this one is just, Everyone is clamoring for responsibly built technologies and behooving and holding the developers of technology to be responsible for complicated tech that impacts values-based type decision-making and has ramifications. But we're not training our tech developers on how to do that mm -hmm. you're basically yeah. asking people who code to make incredibly complex ethical decisions and it's just we cannot people do who that have no background in in specifically in morality Zero. or philosophy or any of Zero. that in history nothing and and well they're on the other end of a ticket in jira or something right to, to 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 make a pull request or like commit code to a repo or something like that they're not yeah. not everybody's thinking about the ethical implications you know when they're like doing that no not at all and moreover you know it's it's again this many grains of sand make a beach if you're one grain of sand hmm. you can't you can't see how your decision is going to then potentially have large ramifications on the deployment in an ethical point of view. Some can be anticipated, some not. Um, but the other thing is we train professionals. If it's outside your knowledge sphere, don't touch it, which is correct, right? Mm. So you have all these coders who, again, you meet your average coder. They're absolutely lovely yeah. people, you know, but rightfully so. They say, that's not my job. And a lot of people get kind of cross at that. It's like, well, what do you mean that's not your job? You're building the tech. It's your job to make sure it's responsible. But part of what they mean is I've not been trained to do that job. It's not part of my job description. I have... I have no idea how to even begin to do this. I'm not going to touch it because I could do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. If I start trying to play around with this area that I'm not trained in and I don't understand and I'm not, you know, I have no business trying to make decisions on what is good or not good. I mean, beyond the obvious I find it a little bit harder to wrap my head around how a developer will function in that context because depending on the specific technology in the application, like they might be working on a specific branch and they don't really understand how it connects to the bigger picture and what, what implications mm -hmm. it's going to have. But like in the sphere of design, I think it's a little bit more obvious. Again, the guys from uh, Center for Humane Technology, Aza Raskin, he is the one that actually designed 
and evangelize the infinite scroll. I think this was mm-hmm. around two, 2012 or something like that, maybe 2010. Mm-hmm. And he's actually very public in his regret for having done mm-hmm. that because he actually went around Silicon Valley. He evangelizes. The scenario then was you're at the bottom of a blog website and then you have to click next button. You're at the bottom of the first page of Google results and then you have to click the arrow. And that was just one more step that was an inconvenience to the user. So he evangelizes. But at the time, then he said, like he had no way of knowing or foreseeing that social media would use that feature to turn into doom scrolling. And it's kind of, it's hacking into that part of the human brain that says, if I've got a list of 10 things, a tasks I need to do, and I get to number 10, and then I see a little bit more that's not going to take me that much more time to actually do, I'm going to knock that off. And the next thing you know, like hours go by. So he's got a lot of regret. I mean, he's been very public about expressing that. I mean, how would you know? I, I, you I, you're not an oracle, right? No. No, and so there's there's the unforeseen consequence like that, right? It's one of those, if you have someone who's trained in human psychology, who's core on that group, and who's studied how people interact with technology, they maybe could have predicted one way that scrolling is going to be used is to just keep people engaged. It's the bottomless pit of yeah. digital content now. But you're right, like... As, as a developer, you're like, dang, I just solved the problem. No yeah, more, yeah. you know, yay, I made it easier for the user. This is great UI. Yep. Like that, that pain in the ass of clicking buttons just like went away and I can have a uncluttered and uninterrupted browsing experience. This is Speaking of which, just kind of a slight pivot here. There was something that you and I commiserated on when we first chatted. Um, I just realized today that the World Economic Forum in Davos is next week. So mm-hmm. you've got all these business leaders and world leaders and whatnot showing up there. And apparently the theme this year is building trust. Mm-hmm. We had some interesting shared kind of thoughts about where do our economic systems, where does capitalism kind of fall into this picture? What are its responsibilities or implications? Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear that in Davos, that People are going to be now talking about building trust. How do you feel about that? It's a wonderful question. And again, working in the ESG space, environmental social governance, if you've never heard of it before, look it up. <laughs> it's a it's a really cool concept. And I think this is such an important way when we talk about what is sort of bothering us about humanity and what's bothering us about the way technology is impacting humanity tying initiatives, financial initiatives for companies to do the right thing is imperative. We, we must do this. So just like the creators of technology, most of them are wonderful human beings who do not intend to do harm. So too, most of the people who are in industry mm-hmm. are fine, upstanding citizens who don't intend to go out and do harm. Um, and a lot of them are very bright. And a lot of them are actually, it doesn't sit well with them. You know, Martin said it on his podcast too, mm-hmm. feeling like there's like this pull between the two Martins kind of thing. And I think that's what we need to figure out as a society is how to build financial incentive for companies to be able to behave more responsibly in their decision-making. That's going to be a bit of a tricky one, but it's absolutely necessary 
if we're going to solve or start to chip away at at least some of these bigger problems, because until you do that, a lot of hands are tied. Right. Right. So I think, I think trust is, I mean, I'll be interested to see how they define that and what kind of conversations come out. You and I both. Go to the meeting, but it is imperative. You do have to have trust in each other again, to be able to do things differently, right? If we're going to achieve the type of social justice and environmental changes and other such very large, complicated changes that, and some of them are quite pressing where we have to make some really big changes pretty fast with little to no a priori data, large investments in capital, longer term timeframes, certainly not next quarter Mm -hmm. solution, then you do need to have trust and you do need to be able to take risk and you need to be able to experiment, you know, and take actions where done with best intent actions where you've done your best to foresee and mitigate risk. Well, how do we then incentivize people to jump? You have to be accountable for your actions, but if it's done in good faith, how do we support people who are putting their neck out or corporations or what have you? Right. So it's, it's a, I think trust between global regions is imperative there too because so long as we're all competing we're less likely to cooperate right yeah tristan harris and aza raskin from the center for humane technology i've heard them speaking a fair bit about this and there's just one phrase that i think tristan uses a lot that uh, if you want to change the outcomes you have to change the incentives i do think much of what's broken in society is in part due to a misalignment in incentive structures in that like we prioritize the quarter over the long term if you're constantly making short-term decisions you're almost always going to do it at the expense of the longer term future it doesn't matter if it's a small decision or a big decision right if i prioritize every single day for the next six months on eating like a full bag of potato chips because i really enjoy them right i'm gonna pay the price you know yeah i'm gonna pay the price for it like you know and we've set up the timeframes for the incentives, who gets the incentives. And, and I, I feel like we can actually do this. Like if we actually work with each other in good faith, I think we can even bring AI to the table to help us figure out how we optimize for all of these incentive structures. But I think we need to come to recognition that something has to change and that something isn't just regulating companies uh, as much as I think that that's important. It's actually changing the way in which they chase a goal. It can't just be profit. It has yeah. to be something more than that. That's exactly right. And and how to do that is the big question. So how do you motivate, especially in systems, governments, another one, right? Where the type of ROI and capital investment needs to outlive Mm-hmm. the four-year term right right yeah. so that's a big one longer term you know as, as you were talking I'm, i and i to, to my own lived experience parenting comes to mind right 
every time the kids are doing something where I'm just like, oh, as I rub my temples in real life, and I'm just like, oh, and it's always the, okay, do I do the short, easy thing, or am I playing the long game? Yeah. <laughs> Which is often just like, you're like, this is just painful, yep. but eye on the prize, and, you know, deep breath. And somehow with parenting, a lot of us are able to do that long goal but it's because we know our kids are stuck with us and we're stuck with them mm-hmm. in most, most cases <laughs> you know you're there for the long haul right right and the reward is watching them grow and that's super fulfilling so you're willing to make the short-term sacrifices because there is a guaranteed long-term gain that you yourself benefit from that's a that's an interesting parallel. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, but on you know, we're all on this spinning rock floating around in space, like together right now. Like we have no other place to be. Um, yeah. It is a huge mental shift to make, but I mean, I I, I think ultimately just kind of comes down to caring for something more than the individual and the quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's I think there's a variety of different models that are are kind of working that direction. I'm curious. You mentioned um, parenting. What inspires you? You wake up in the morning. What motivates you to, you had a motivation that got you into doing what you're doing today, but now you're here, you're seeing us at this sort of turning point in human history. What inspires you? The potential. I think it's really exciting. I love the ESG and AI spaces because they're both evolving and they're both immensely complex and they both have such potential to do an awful lot of good if we do it properly. And so it's exciting to be a part of that. And and even if I'm just like, you know, maybe I'll be a flap of butterfly wings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you get the enough butterflies pulling in the right direction. Like you said, there's a lot of people who value doing the right thing over making money. And that's growing. You look at the generations that are especially in sort of 20s, early 30s, far more socially responsible, responsible to the planet because they've grown up their whole lives with the reality that things are changing and that unless we change what we're doing, Mm -hmm. it's not going to go well. Whereas I was born in 78. So that messaging didn't even start super powerfully till 90s where I was already you know, further along. So it's just kind of been the reality where they're like, okay, well, let's figure out how to put on the brakes. You know, they're way more committed to that. And I'd say most of the people I talk to from that generation, you're like, hey, if you can invest money and you can invest and make more money or you can invest and lose a few percent, but the company's doing a lot more responsible stuff. Where do you want to put your money? And a lot of them would be like, sure, I'll give up a couple of percent to yeah. do the right thing. Right. So the socially responsible investing movement, SRI, that's a growing trend. And frankly, it all comes down to you want to make change, speak with your wallet. Yeah. And yeah. as exhausting as it is as a consumer, here's another place AI can help and is starting to help is identifying legitimacy of products that so you can decide as a consumer 
how is your money going to impact? Because that is what makes an impact on the world, really, is how we spend our dollars. Which, Absolutely. Which companies we incentivize, because the more money you give to companies, the more they can keep doing whatever it is they do. I think humans intend well, but we're abstracted from the consequences of our choices and our actions. You don't realize that this thing that you bought was actually made in a private prison. You don't realize that this thing you bought was made by you know, a child in some other country. You don't realize that the lithium in this EV that you feel really great about actually was sourced by hand by a woman picking cobalt out of the dirt in the Congo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and now I think we're at a point, you know, I mean, luckily that there are the heroes among us who are willing to actually go out there and get to the truth and try and bring as much awareness to it. We can't really plead ignorance anymore. So at least that's kind of out of the way. But if most people are given the choice to do something that's a little bit better, um, a little bit more sustainable, is going to make life a little bit better for somebody, even if there's a slight cost to them individually. I don't know what that threshold is, but even then, most people, I think, would select that. Um, I think that's where what you're saying about ESG in particular is it becomes a mechanism to play a forcing function to actually change the calculus in a sense. It does. And we have to be a little careful with the term. So ESG is intended and is used to assess risk, a company's risk with respect to, with respect to environment, social, hmm. or governance. Okay. So it, it says nothing about how responsible that company is or anything else. It's just giving you more transparency into how they perform, what they do, their numbers, environment, social governance. And then it's up to the investor, the fund manager, the asset manager, whomever, to decide whether they want to invest it's another data set so you can understand how that company operates better. When it comes into the idea of more responsible corporate behavior, now that's values-based. So this is, this is a big difference, and that's more socially responsible investing, right? You may be using a lot of the same data points, but for, hmm. for deciding, okay, what is it I value? because then that is more subjective. So some people, for example, may value environment highly. They don't care so much about social responsibility or governance, say, but they care an awful lot about environmental impact. Well, maybe they use the e-data and they heavily weight that Mm -hmm. versus the other stuff. Um, Where someone else might be like social justice above all, you know, or, or whatever. Right, right. There might be certain parts that you care deeply about, like carbon emissions is like, has a much higher weight than water management, say. Okay. So the ESG part is the data, you know, and I think it gets, it gets demonized a lot as, you know, uh, you hear a lot of it about ESG being, the woke sort of idealism and um, there's places where they're even trying to block the requirement of ESG data from corpse. Um, so some, a lot of areas like the European union, for example, is leading the charge on requiring disclosure of environmental social governance data from every single company above a certain size, above a certain 
um, income level has to disclose a whole bunch of metrics related to environmental social publicly. And it has right. to be audited by a third party. And their position is we can't start doing the type of change we're talking about if we don't know where you really are to begin with. Right. And like, how are you, how are you going to target set for initiatives if you don't even know where you are right now? And how are we going to be responsible for value chains if we don't know exactly what the impact of our own supply chains are in some cases, right? right. So they're mandating companies, everyone from Microsoft and Amazon right down to like, you know, much smaller entities has to disclose all this stuff and companies are responsible for their supply chain. They're responsible for knowing who's in their supply chain, impact of supply chain, but also things like scope one, two, and three emissions is another big one. Scope one emissions are the emissions you yourself as a company make. Scope two are sort of proxy emissions by your operations, like your fleet. Scope three includes all the impact of all your products. So okay. you think about this and your brain explodes a little bit. So you think, <laughs> you know, everyone's thinking, oh, oil companies and emissions. Well, scope three emissions, you know, scope one emissions is, you know, how how much does it take you to get it out of the ground kind of thing. Right. And then scope three emissions is how much impact is it burning all the stuff you got out of the ground. Right. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But really estimating scope emissions for oil companies is, you know, it's not easy. I'm not trying to trivialize it, but if you can estimate the number of barrels they got out of the ground, you can ballpark. Right. You got it. You have a sense of the downstream impact. Someone like say Walmart, what is their scope three emission? Like, so we're, we're seeing all these, it gets so complicated so fast in terms of where do you draw that line? What are they actually responsible for? Like, what is, what are they reasonably responsible for when you operate that type of business? And what is it reasonable for that type of business to estimate? Because, you know, even with the best intentions, that is an extremely big ask, but right. Europe is interesting because, I mean, they, they seem to lead the charge on, on certain fronts between what you're describing in the ESG space, between recent legislation in the EU around AI governance. Um, I think they're going to be the first to actually set up some sort of an enforcement body. They're going to be the first to actually levy fines on on companies for non-compliance. That is the role I think absolutely the government needs to play because it's in the public interest to be able to make sure that all entities in that you know environment are kind of behaving responsibly. So I'm I'm encouraged seeing some of this. I'm even the White House's uh, executive order on AI. I thought was actually surprisingly thorough. I mean, it doesn't answer. There's so many unanswered questions in terms of even just how they're going to pull it off. But at least I was encouraged to see that it seems to be somewhat more wide sweeping and well informed than I would have frankly expected it to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and countries around the world are, are doing similar stances on AI. Canada has the, uh, they're working on regulation toward AI as well. You know, Europe's coming first again mm-hmm. with AI regs. The UK has its own sort of spin on it. 
And then Canada's in the same tough spot that it always is where, (laughs) you know, eyeballing Europe and we have kind of this colonial government model that mimics Europe, European model closely, but our largest trading partner to the South, you know, we have to jive with whatever they're doing. And so again, this idea of AI and ESG and all these ideas you're seeing this tension of truly needing to cooperate globally and not be so regional because you have these big multinationals where they have massive amounts of data, of human personnel, of goods, of all these things that do not know borders anymore. Yeah. And they have to be able to operate in a global marketplace. So as soon as you put on regional requirements, you're making things really difficult and messy and an already difficult challenge. You're just upping that bar, which incentivizes companies to throw up their hands and say, come on now, right? And you have to have some sympathy for that when you have like every jurisdiction, you have a different set of rules to operate under. And if we're going to make this whole thing sing, you know, if we're going to be able to support the types of changes we say we want to see, we frankly, we need AI. So something like being able, you know, again, with the idea of regulation and disclosure of ESG, the governments are not, you know, well, certainly in Europe, um, in Canada, the U.S., they're not telling you how to run your company. They're not saying you have to run your company with a certain level of responsibility. What they're saying is you have to be transparent about what your company is doing so that then all the other stakeholders, investors, et cetera, can decide whether they want to do business or invest with you. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really, really important. And where they're regulating and where companies are getting fined is if they're fudging the data or if they're misrepresenting data, progress toward goals, for example, or they're not reporting fully or they're fudging numbers or, you know, and and as it said, as it should be, right? Like it's not fair to your peers if everyone else is bending over to cough up all this data, which for companies, it's a little like, you know, they're really disclosing a lot of stuff that they've kept pretty their cards pretty close to their chest because you know no one quite understands competitive advantage how is this going to impact and how do we strategize so that we are following regulations but we're also you know performing as well as we can in our niche space and all all these things um so it's gonna it's gonna be super super interesting and we can't we can't do it without ai we can't the amount of data that we're asking people to track and cough up and then analyze and amalgamate mm-hmm. and even the auditing in of, of itself is just so massive. It, it's the most enormous data set. You know, it, it it's frankly starting to dwarf pretty much anything else we've captured thus far. Right. Financial is the only thing I can think of that kind of compares to just the quantity of data that we're asking companies to start collecting and monitor and audit and every year constantly, really, you know, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's, it's funny that um, I I think necessary and important that governments are 
going to be requiring this of the private sector of companies. Um, that transparency, I do think, is critical. And I, when you put it that way, I, I can't disagree with you at all. Like we need AI to help solve that problem. On the flip side, I think it should also be an expectation. It very well should be in you know democratic countries that that level of transparency is also there from the government. That level of standard shouldn't just be weighed on on companies. But governments should, they make promises, they run on a certain platform, they make certain commitments, they collect billions and billions in tax revenue, and then they're supposed to distribute it amongst the public trust in a way that is makes sense based on you know how they've been elected. But it's really hard to follow the money, it's really hard to follow the decisions. You know, I know certain countries are perhaps better than others, but I think it's fair to expect that of our governments as well. The biggest thing that's missing is that transparency. Sometimes it's actually accidental. Sometimes it's hard to be transparent because it's so hard to actually tell the whole story and share all the data, right? Mm-hmm. Or, it's, or they might not even have it, all, all the data. In other cases, um, as soon as you share it, you're now under the spotlight and scrutiny for making decisions that you wouldn't have made if it was out in the open. But I think that's something that we kind of need to have if we're going to actually have trust in society. Yeah. And it's interesting, we're back to the whole cultural ideal, too, of Mm. what type of government and how do you operate. Um, So that's a really interesting question, too. And at the heart of this trust idea, right, is if we're operating under different, and this is an age-old diplomacy kind of thing, if we're operating under different cultural norms where we know our culture is the right way to be, you know, how do we come to those compromises as we must do? Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, well, there's the idea of right and good is a human value judgment. Right. Right. And again, inching toward global society, especially global economy, how do we businesses and governments tackle this every day, right? Like you have to operate across different cultures and different expectations in terms of what's right and reporting and everything else. And we see that in terms of what gets produced where in our world. And, you know, um, a fascinating example is one of the, one of the ESG indicators that is collected is do you have child labor Um, and a lot of companies that operate out of North America have a zero score, you know, in that field because they don't bother reporting that in any of their corporate (laughs) sustainability documents. Cause they're like, of course we don't have child labor in our company, you know, zero tolerance. Um, but again, if it's in your supply chain, Mm -hmm. then does that count toward your score or, you know, how do we capture that? So it's the whole child labor has got very strict laws that are enforced in some areas of the world and not so much other areas. Right. And then that enables us to manufacture things for a certain cost that is different where, you know, People take advantage of that because it it gives the competitive edge, for example. So until Mm -hmm. we have more agreement on globally, 
what's considered acceptable, you're still going to have situations like that where there's different tolerances of acceptable behavior. And it's going to be interesting to see but how I, we. I, I think even in that, even in that scenario, like let's just take a hypothetical company that makes fast fashion. They could have children working in one of their a supplier. It might not even be their direct supplier. It could be the supplier of fabrics to the actual manufacturer who then makes clothes for them and labels them. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's at least known, if you can track all the way through the supply chain, if you can actually know that, that particular company could be operating retail operations in multiple countries. There's going to be some countries, I would imagine, where if that's known and it's transparent, they just won't be able to do business. Or their business will be so compromised because the general public just doesn't want to buy from that type of company. But that same company might actually be selling successfully somewhere else where there might be a different threshold for that practice. This is where I kind of wrestle with capitalism in general. Like, I don't know a better system than capitalism for creating human outcomes. But the way that we execute capitalism is just is so incredibly broken and compromised for so many reasons When I'm thinking of capitalism in my naive utopia, it's actually not one just of commerce and exchange of sort of monetary wealth. It's actually about overall human well-being, right? Mm -hmm. So in that context, if you have transparency and if people really know what they're buying, they're going to buy the thing, I think, nine times out of ten that's actually better for everyone. What one hopes again, it's like transparency and explicability, right? Yeah, um, allowing the consumer to make a choice, but also giving the consumer a choice. So, I mean, that choice works if you have enough disposable income to make choices about what you buy. Whereas, if you don't, now what you know, and this, this poses another really interesting thought experiment, right? If you are at the point where you're choosing between as many people are honestly in Canada right now, first world country where a lot of people are choosing between, you know, food and rent and heat and like real necessities of life choices they're making. You don't, you're not going to be able to afford Patagonia. So what, what do you do now? Even if it's transparent and explicable that the clothes you are buying were made by a child somewhere, you know, if, if the alternative is twice the price, what do you do? Is that really a choice anymore? So there's some really interesting things where, you know, expl- understanding where it comes from. 100%. And I think for the consumer that has disposable income and is able to make choices, awesome. But we also have to think about what about people who are maybe not able to make choices? Then how do we, you know, not disadvantage them or have them, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think the- part of the problem there, though, is we see this as a zero sum game. But like, if we take that example, and, and again, maybe this is a very simplistic view of it, you know, a person who would love to buy Patagonia because that particular way of doing business just totally aligns with who they are, but they can't afford it because they're just trying to make it through the month, you know, maybe feed their family, etc. That person is, you know, maybe even against their own best angels having to go buy something that they know very well could have been made in some sweatshop somewhere else. But the fact that they're not making enough income to be able to afford that is actually, I think, the first thing that should come under scrutiny. So why is that? 
there's downward pressure on pricing for something, but then there's also downward pressure on income, right? Or salaries for people working in some countries. Like in a lot of ways in certain sectors, like whether it's Canada, the US, Europe, people are having a hard time, you know, making it through the month. But it's not because we don't suddenly have the capacity, the ingenuity necessarily to make things, to create value. There is more than enough abundance of resources and money and economic prosperity to go around, but it's partly hoarded. And there's partly this weird dynamic where, okay, I want to do the right thing, but I can't afford to do the right thing. And because I can't afford to do the right thing, I'm just actually incentivizing the wrong behavior and the wrong practices over and over. Yeah, exactly. Where you're paying a fair wage to your employees and you're supporting uh, tradespeople in their countries that are paid a fair wage and are able to, you know, have disposable income and that sort of thing. That's exactly it. I think this is another place where AI can help immensely, frankly, is helping consumers to wade through all the considerations they need to when purchasing products. Because frankly, you go to a store, it's just overwhelming. You can't make that many choices about every single product that you end up consuming. You you, you pick your battles. Yeah, for sure. You you pick your sort of passion areas where you dig a little deeper and learn a little bit more about where the XYZ that you're choosing to buy comes from and how the company that created it or the the local artisan that created it, like what are their practices and is that aligned with your values system, Right. right? And we also have to just embrace the fact that some people just don't care about those things. And they will take that extra percent or two in profit over other aspects. And, and, and such it is, I think you're right. We, We live at such an interesting time right now on so many fronts and, it certainly is. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm an optimist. I have to say, I used to be a lot more pessimistic. Um, okay. I used to be a lot more pessimistic about the direction of humanity and the ability for, you know, we used to be a lot more negative toward industry and corporate for being able to do the right thing. Um, But I've also, especially recently, and maybe I'm biased because I'm in the ESG space and it tends to attract people (laughs) who care about such things in the first place. That's why they're there, you know. Um, Then there's a lot of companies that are are becoming genuinely thoughtful and putting in, starting to put in some real capital and resource toward doing better in whatever that thing it is because they're run by people who care at the end of the day. And a lot of people who run companies are like, okay, that's, that's far enough. You know, there's, it's starting to get to that tipping point where everyone, and again, not all companies by any means, but there's, there's a fair number that are genuinely looking at, okay, how are we going to do better? For real. Yeah. Not just talk about it. I'm happy to hear that level of optimism. I think it's much needed at this time. Jennifer, you have been incredibly gracious with with your time. And I, I tend to get a little bit greedy in these conversations. I guess if I can leave you with one last question, which is, well, two, actually. What are you keeping your eye closest to in 2024 that's happening in the world? What are you most optimistic about? 
And okay, I lied. Three questions. Where can people <laughs> where can people um, find out more about you, your work, the things that you've kind of raised? So, what am I keeping an eye on in twenty twenty four? Well, the ESG space, of course, especially closely on Europe and the regs coming out of Europe and how that's impacting companies, companies' responses to regulation and. You know, that's certainly the company I work at now, ESG AI. We're right in the thick of it. So Mm -hmm. really keen to see how can we better support companies in transitioning towards this more transparent, data-rich world, which is where they're headed next. I'm really keen on how do we kick away barriers that are causing a thorn inside for corporations to start collecting and and disclosing this data because I I really believe that that is the linchpin that is desperately needed to truly get the ball rolling on so many things that we as society say we care deeply about and, and enabling choices, people to make honest choices about where they put their money. And why? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really important. So, a, a lot of eyes turned over toward the EU for me okay. this year, and to some extent California as well, because they're coming on board with regs in the U.S. Which, you know, as much as I'm like grip my teeth, the U.S. political everyone kind of has that. You can't sort of be operating in the world and and not kind of wonder how that's all going to go yeah. down. It is a bit of a cloud that's kind of overhead. It's a bit of a, uh, but they are such the elephant in the. If it's of any consolation, I think there's 62, 64 countries with elections this year, of which 42 are presidential or general. So, you know, there's. It's enormous. Right? Things could go wrong in many places. <laughs> <laughs> or, or right. You know? Or right. I mean, I'm always it's still like fingers crossed. Um, um, I think you know, as we know, though the, I, and I don't want to go down the political rabbit hole, but even just seeing how politics on both sides is getting so extreme, and just the intolerance for each other, and it just feels like it mirrors social media, mm-hmm. where either you're in my echo chamber or we're flinging dirt at each other. You know, it's like, it feels like, but doesn't anyone care about sensibly running a country anymore? Like where's the, where's the middle ground, you know? And again, there's like so many people who work within governments who are desperate to do the right thing for their country. And they're appalled by what they're seeing in their governments. Right. And it's just like, oh, so anyway, but yeah. Okay. I promise that's that's (laughs) the last word on that because I I don't want to go there. That's another whole thing. But, you know, it does, as you pointed out, governments impact what happens within corporate, which then has an enormous impact on what happens within our lives and how fast we get to goals because, well, well, as a company and for my company, you know, our, we are objective data driven and we are, which I really love. Like that's our goal, transparent, objective data so that the user of the data can do what their context 
demands, mm. you know, and then I, as an individual, am hopeful that this is going to nudge us towards more environmentally responsible and socially responsible behavior. Well, it certainly and, feels like a step in the right direction for sure. It is that for trust, trust is so important. The data itself must be objective if you're going to support trust. Right. Because as soon as you throw bias into the data to look like you're trying to push someone's decision-making one way or another, the trust is broken and then nothing works. Right. Where can people find out more about you or follow you? Where do you? people find out more about me? Um, LinkedIn. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. It's probably uh, the best spot to find me these days. My company, ESGAI, you can keep an eye on what we're doing on the website. Um, but for me personally, LinkedIn's probably the best way to to see what I'm up to. A <laughs> hundred years from now, if we still have green trees and clean water and clothes aren't made by kids, it's thanks to you, Jennifer. <laughs> not not just me. I'm I'm one of the one of the anthill workers. <laughs> but yeah. No, there's a there's a lot of good things being done out there with AI. I think, you know, it's right for us to be wary. It's right for us to be careful. I'd much rather side of caution things. Mm-hmm. There's no reason not to do that. But there's also a lot of wonderful things that it can achieve. Well, I appreciate you making this time for me because I think I'm I'm probably walking out a little bit more optimistic than I was uh, anticipating, but it's not because we avoided talking about the dangers and concerns. Like we actually walked through that field and still came back in a positive place. And I think that's something that uh, I think on many issues we just need to do as a world. So, you know, thank you for indulging me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And and go check out the MIT study. Go take the quiz and see who who you hit with your car. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way we're going to wrap up here. I wonder who's going to hit. Amazing. Jennifer, thank you uh, so, so much. Look forward to staying connected and, and just watching your work. And thank you for all you do for the world. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's It's been such a fun conversation. All right. We are out. You've been listening to the Awoken Word podcast. Or at least, I think you have. Or maybe it just came on and you left the room and right now I'm talking to no one. But on the off chance that you actually did listen to the entire episode and you liked what you heard, there's a lot of ways that you can support Awoken Word. First of all, definitely subscribe to the podcast. We are available on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And of course, all of this content is available on our website at www.awokenword.com. You can also connect with us over social media. On Instagram, we are at Awoken Word Podcast. On YouTube, Facebook, and X formerly known as Twitter, we are at Awoken Word. If you've liked what you've heard, definitely spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your siblings, tell the crazy half-naked guy in the apartment across the street, tell your pet iguana, 
If you feel like spreading the word amongst some ferns, go for it. However you see fit, spread the word. Like many others, we're trying to build a better world through meaningful conversation. And if you'd like to discuss any of the topics or the conversations that we've had here in your own podcasts, please feel free to do so. If you have questions, if you have recommendations for new guests or new topics, definitely do reach out. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Anuj Rastogi. Peace out.